But hey, I'm I am really excited about this series because um for the last for the last year I've been uh, just kind of engaging more and more with scripture and kind of looking at the landscape of where the American church is. Um, and what I've learned is when it comes to this book right here, to many it's just a book. To many it's just something that we give when you're a senior in high school. You typically get one of these from your church or graduate college or um, you get baptized. You know, typically you get these things. And then we don't understand the power that's within the pages of this book, the, the very inspired words of God right here in this place. And it gets neglected many times where we just get it. Thanks for the gift. Could have used a gift card to Target, but you gave me this book. And I don't know what it is, but okay. But there's something that always draws us back to this book. When you go through some very, very dark times in your life or there's things or you're trying to make decisions, we'll grab this thing and we'll just dust the, the dust right off of it, won't we? And we'll just start looking. And Sometimes we treat it like a magic eight ball and we just shake it up. God, just please tell me, tell me, tell me what you want me to do. And then we read verses like it says, a dog will return to his own vomit. That's in there, by the way. See, when you read it, you find fascinating things in the scripture. And I remember when I made a commitment to follow Jesus, the first thing the church did was handed me this Bible. Precious gift. And I didn't know anything about the Bible. Period. Nothing. Nothing. But I was told that this book contained the very words of God from him, inspired by him to man. And that everything from cover to cover is truth. Study it. Learn it. So I was encouraged to read this. I was encouraged to learn this. And I was encouraged to live by this without any understanding of anything that was happening in this book. I was a middle schooler, so my imagination was running wild. David and Goliath, you can throw rocks at people. That sounds pretty cool. There was no fence based around this book. I didn't even have a clue where to start. I couldn't pronounce half of the words that were in this book. Can I be honest with you? I still can't pronounce half the words in this book. I have learned that one of the tricks when you're teaching out of the Bible, if you can't say the word, say it fast and with confidence and nobody will ever question it. But I couldn't understand it and they were telling me to live your life by this book. Live it. And I'm like, how do I live a life about a book that I can't understand? Nobody was there to come alongside of me to teach me the importance of it. And so after a while, I just gave up trying to even read it and understand it and comprehend it. It became just another book on the shelf. Who am I kidding? It became the only book on the shelf at that time. And it just, I just tried to find ways to justify being a Christian and not reading this or studying it or understanding it. So I would say things like, well, my pastor preaches out of this thing every week. So if I'll just follow along on Sunday, I'm good. So I can check that off the list that I've read my Bible today. I went to youth group on Wednesday. Pastor read it. Check. All right. Sunday school, he read it. So I've read the Bible three times this week. That's the way I would look at it and I would try to justify it because I felt like there was this pool that I was supposed to be doing something with this. But I felt like I was on my own little island by myself and didn't understand it and couldn't put things together. And I just gave up. And, and maybe... 
Maybe for you, your story may be the same way. Maybe you received a copy of the Bible and you had no idea what to do with it and out of embarrassment of even asking because you thought everybody else knew about it, you just didn't say anything. You just tried to blend in and your Bible just came, one of those things that was sitting to the side. So there was no explanation. Maybe, maybe you were told that if you'll just read it, learn it, and live by it, you'll be good to go. And that is what we're supposed to do with it. But when you don't understand it, and you don't, can't make any sense of why these things happen in the Old Testament, why these things happen in the New Testament, and it, it just gets really, really twisted. And maybe for some of you, you've lost interest. Because I think we can all agree, we know Bible stories, right? Like we know the stories of you know, Jesus walking on the water, and David and Goliath, and we know the story of the Ten Commandments, and we know those stories. And we know we can quote scriptures, whether or not they're in context with what we're trying to say, we can quote a scripture and we'll twist it and use it for whatever we need it for that time in our lives. And we know the words of God. But the question is, do we know God of the word? Do we know who he is? Because this book teaches us the attributes and the character of who God is. Like, yeah, this is how you live your life, but we know how to live life based off of the way that it was modeled by Jesus himself when he came here. This whole book from cover to cover is one big story one big story of, of redemption, of God starting from the very beginning and brokenness entering into the world in Genesis chapter 3 and the whole narrative from Genesis chapter 3 to the end in Revelation is God moving the storyline to bring redemption back so that he, you and I could have a relationship restored back to God. And so when we look at this book, we have to start asking questions because it's a little naive as a middle schooler to be handed this book and say that everything in it is from God. Well, I don't even know who God is. I just felt that I was supposed to like, ask for forgiveness of sin. And I, I, don't, I don't even know who God is. So it wouldn't have mattered if you handed me a book by God or handed me a book by anybody. It didn't, to me, these two books didn't have any difference to them because I didn't even know who God was. And so I had to start asking questions. Can this book even be trusted? And we base our whole life and we tell people, live your life by this book, but do we even know that it can be trusted? I mean, that's a, that's a fair, legitimate question. Maybe you've thought about that, but felt like if I ask that, maybe I'm insulting God. But can this book be trusted? We've built things and missions and opportunities off of this book, some for good, some for really bad things. And this book is being used. You can go to any kind of cult and they'll use scripture. You can go to false religions, they'll use scriptures. But can it be trusted? Do we understand that this book, that this is what we've been given and this is what it is and this is the words of God. So over the next couple of weeks, what I want us to do is just really look. Can this book be trusted? And if so, what does it look like for us to live our life by it? How do we understand it more? How, do, how, do, how does this become a daily part of my life? So we're going we're gonna to dig in over these next few weeks and, and see what makes the Bible different from any other book ever written. Because it, can I tell you, it is. It has been on the number one New York Times bestseller list for years. Because even people who aren't Christians, when they need hope, guess where they go? They go and grab this. So my goal is today that we're going to kind of get through and just kind of answer that question, can the Bible be trusted? Can it be trusted? And if so, what do we do with that today? 
Charles Spurgeon was a theologian back in the 1800s, and he wrote this quote, and I want to start with it because I think it kind of it pushes us in the right direction. He said, visit many good books. Be a reader. Learn. But live in the Bible. All human books grow stale after time. But with the Word of God, the desire to study, the desire to study this increases. The more we read, the more we want to know. It won't grow stale. Spurgeon is telling us that out of all the books in the world, this is the one that is active and living and is alive and will bring transformation to what you're doing. Like true life transformation. And he's encouraging when he writes this and is preaching this, he wants them to understand the importance of this book, that it's not merely one of the many manuscripts of other things, of religious things that have been written. It is the very words of God, and it is living and acting, active and will never grow stale because the more you read it, the more you want it. But the sad truth is that we don't really want to read it much anymore. Well, instead, we'll grab, and there's nothing wrong with this, but we'll grab a quick devotional that has a verse, and we'll just pull that, and we'll just use that for the day, but we won't ever crack the book open. We won't ever open the app on our phone and read pieces and portions of Scripture. We just try to get little bits and pieces. And, and again, get little bits and pieces, but make sure you're taking the time to really get into the Word and, and writing it out and take your time. I think a lot of times we feel so guilty when we read the Bible and thinking, well, I didn't read enough. Take your time reading it. If you try to speed read this thing, you're going to be super confused of understanding why a guy was called to build a boat out in the middle of the desert, Noah. That's going to get really confusing. And so we've gotten to the point where we don't really read it anymore. And this is what's absolutely crazy to me. Is if this book is the thing that we base our entire life off of, why are we not in it and reading it? So are we building our lives off of the scriptures? Or are we building our lives based off of what we think it says versus what it really says? The American Bible Society, alongside with a, a company called the Barna Research Group, they did this major study back in 2018. They polled over 2,000 people in the, in the U.S. And here, here's some of the results they found. They found that 52% of the people in the United States do not read the Bible at all. Over half of people. That's understandable. There's a lot of people that don't know Jesus. But what's sad is some of this 52% would include people because there was some lying that was going back and forth. Oh, yeah, I'll read it. Mm -hmm. But there were some Christians also that probably just straight up said, I don't. I don't. I just hear from God. I don't need the Bible. I don't need to go to church. I go out in nature. You've heard people say that. That's why you're not shooting that deer. That's, that's why. Bad theology. It came back and it said 8% use the Bible three to four times a year. Three to four times a year. 8%. 6% use it once a month. 8% use it once a week, and then 14% of people in the United States read it daily. Why, why is this? I think it's because it's back to people don't understand the Scripture and understand how essential it is to the life of a believer. Right? I, I did a poll at the beginning of the school year. I, I have an opportunity to teach in a Bible class, and I had 20 students in there, and I asked them, honestly, no judgment, don't even put your name on it, but I want you to write on this piece of paper why you don't read the Bible. What keeps you from reading it? And they all came back with two things that were in it. Can we trust it? And we don't understand it. We don't, we don't know if we can trust it, and we don't understand it. So this has been my deal with my class for the whole year. Will you give me the opportunity for the remaining school year 
to help you understand that this book can be trusted and I'm going to help you understand it. And so now we have broken down the processes of helping them understand the importance of Scripture in their life. You know what they're doing? They're actually reading the Bible and their parents can't figure it out because they're reading the Bible. And I've got parents that will email me going, it was really weird because I walked up to my kid's room last night and they're sitting on the bed reading Scripture. Made me want to read mine. Perfect. <laughs> it worked. So would you bear with me over the next couple of weeks of teaching you can trust this and I'll help you understand some things? And I want to be honest with you. Some stuff I still don't understand. We get in the book of Revelation? I don't know. I'm not, Jesus is coming back. How? On a cloud. I don't know. He's coming back. But you, you look at this and you read that these people, these 52% and all these percentages don't understand the essential piece of the scriptures. That's why I think they don't come back to it or they're intimidated by it. But I, I think too that maybe someone had that same line to them as just read it, learn it, and live it. And you're going to be good to go. And they were abandoned. What we typically call discipleship in the church, people are being discipled by spiritual abandonment. Spiritual abandonment. If you, you got to go to church, you got to pray, you got to serve, you got to give. If you do those four things, you'll be a part of our, our, our group here. If you'll do those, you're good, you're in, and God will love you. And that's the way that we approach this. But we don't ever sit down to help people truly become discipled, understanding what this book means. What did Jesus really mean? Because here's, here's what I asked when we started this church. It was on the basis of, what if Jesus really meant what he said? What if he really, and what if the church really did the things that Jesus said because we know that he meant what he said? What would that look like? Can I just tell you that we have not been disappointed yet? And as long as we follow Jesus and the Holy Spirit and we continue to ground ourselves in his word and in his truths and his promises, we'll never find disappointment in God's calling. There may be days that aren't comfortable. There may be days that we're stressed out a little bit, but I call those things tension. Because that's where God wants us to be. He wants us to be in a continual tension. You can't have growth. And I'm not talking about numerical growth. I'm talking about inner spiritual growth. You can't have that without tension. you got to work out a little bit. Part of working out is reading scriptures. It's heavy. Some days reading scripture is heavy. There's some things that are heavy. But we push through and we keep working it, even when we feel like we don't want to. There, there are 66 books in the Bible. 66. They have been written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different writers on three different continents. A lot of hands involved in it. And so people would stop right there and go, how do you trust that? You have a book that's consisted of 66 other writings that's written over a 1,500-year span by 40 different writers from three different continents. They didn't even speak the same language didn't even have the same background, weren't even writing at the same time, and you can believe that this book can be trusted? Yes, I do. And I want to tell you why. Because the Old Testament itself has 39 books. The Old Testament, 39 books written over about a, a, a time of 1,100 years. Because when you get to the, the um, Malachi in the Old Testament, last book, right? Between that and Matthew, 400 years, we call that the intertestamental period. So from the last book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament, 
There's 400 years that have passed that they call intertestamental. That means God went silent, wasn't really speaking for inspiring words for them to write. He was still active and moving. When we shut out the Old Testament, we find the people in slavery because they've gotten themselves caught in the cycle of sin. And when we open to the book of Matthew, there's this new reign of people that they're called the Romans all of a sudden. So within that 400-year span, the Romans rise to be the most powerful empire of the time. And then we get right into the narrative of the birth of Jesus. So a lot of things happened in that 400 years' time and in that 1,100 years' worth of writing. So when we look at this, the Old Testament writers made predictions about the coming Messiah. They would write things that seemed like, this is weird, and there's no way that can be, you, you, like, you're just pulling that out of nowhere. And they would begin making these predictions and prophecies towards when the Messiah comes, this is how it's going to happen. They were saying these things 1,100 years before Jesus came. It's pretty bold to be making these statements. It's, it's like me saying this statement. I'm a Gamecock fan. We're going to win the national championship next year. All the Clemson fans giggled. Because y'all know the probability of that happening. So all this time period, they're, they're making these predictions. Predictions like, not just that the Messiah is going to be born, but they said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They named the place. He's going to come from Bethlehem. They would even say things like this. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. That's getting pretty, pretty specific, right? They even said that he was going to be crucified. You know what's interesting about that? The Romans invented crucifixion. That hadn't even happened yet. That was not even a mode of death penalty yet. And these people are making these predictions. Now we know these were prophecies from God that they're writing in these books stating these things are going to happen 400 years before Jesus got here. So there's this over 300 predictions, prophecies in the Old Testament. And did you know that Jesus came along and fulfilled all 300 prophecies that have been written about him. What's the chances of that happening? I asked that question and I was doing some research and found the guy who found the guy. You got to always have a guy that knows a guy who knows a guy. There's a scientist back in the 50s named Dr. Peter Stoner. He's an expert in probability. He did a lot of probability and statistics. Anybody ever take probability and statistics? Yeah, I didn't get to that class. We were still trying to get past basic fundamental math. But he's this expert in prob probability. In 1958, Dr. Stoner wrote this book called Science Speaks. Now, if you'd like to have a copy of this book, you better fork over some cash. Because I thought, this book is intriguing. I'm going to buy it. Went to Amazon, found it, because there are only a few copies. $139 for a paperback book. No thanks. I just found the research online, so we're not going to read the book. But if you want to fancy it and go on Amazon today and order it, you better hurry. There's four copies left. So he said, what is the probability that Jesus could fulfill these prophecies that were spoken that long ago? Because if this is true, it gives the Bible a lot more ground to stand on, does it not? So he said, let's figure this out. Let's do the probability. Now, the probability of me buying that book on Amazon is zero. But Dr. Stoner wanted to know, what is the probability? And he said this, 
just eight of the 300 prophets. What is the possibility of just eight of these? So he assembles this team, and he, they begin working the math. And here's what Dr. Stoner came up with. He said, we're going to take eight of these 300 messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, and they're going to take these 600 science students, they're going to do the research, they're going to figure out these eight predictions, and then they're going to send it back to another group to double-check their work behind them. Here, here are the eight. They said they're going to test the, the probability that Jesus would fulfill being the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. They were going after the specifics. A messenger that would prepare the way for the Messiah, talking about John the Baptist. And then he said the Messiah is going to enter into Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. Okay? He said, that's in Zechariah chapter 9. He says, then the Messiah is going to be betrayed by a friend. He's going to suffer wounds in his hand. Talking about Judas. This is Zechariah 13. He said, the Messiah is going to be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Again in Zechariah. Then he said, the betrayal money is going to be used to purchase a potter's field. And then the seventh one, the Messiah is going to remain silent while he's being afflicted. Because Jesus was quiet. He only cried out seven times from the cross. And when he did, he was speaking to his father. And, he's invert, and in the, the eighth thing, he said the Messiah, he's going to die by hands and feet being pierced. Talking about crucifixion in Psalms chapter 22. Hours of calculations. Hours of probability. That anyone could fulfill any of these eight predictions. These eight prophecies. What is the probability? And this is the number they came back with. They said the chances are 10 to the 17th power. 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Quadrillion. That's the chances. Now, that's a pretty big number. We're having a hard time wrapping our minds around that, aren't we? I had a hard time trying to type, make sure I got all the zeros. (laughs) Had a hard time trying to pronounce the word. Let me put it in the way that I, that I saw it explained, and I think this will help. Take a silver dollar, and you're going to have a quadrillion of those things. And we're going to go to the state of Texas, and we're going to start throwing those things out. It's going to fill about two feet deep, the whole state. Then we're going to take a guy who's been hanging out over in Oklahoma, blindfolded the whole time and didn't see what we did, and we're going to put him in a helicopter, and we're going to fly him over the state of Texas, and we're going to say, listen, there's a quadrillion silver dollars on the ground down there. We marked one of them with an X. You tell us when you want us to drop you off. You get out. You walk over. You grab it. You'll grab the one with the X. That is 10 to the 17th power. The chance of picking up that silver dollar are the same chances that any human being over 2,000 years could have fulfilled eight of the prophecies of Jesus, and Jesus filled all 300. Now, they were intrigued by this number, so they decided to do more math. I would have stopped right there. They decided we need to take this a step further. Dr. Stoner and his team were so intrigued to ask another question. Well, what's the chance that someone could have fulfilled all 16 of these prophecies? And the chances of fulfilling 16, they found, was 1 to the uh, tenth to the forty-fifth power. It's, it's a lot of zeros. A lot of zeros. So let's go back to help wrap your mind around that one. Forty-five zeros behind that number. If going back to the silver dollar, if I had silver dollar, ten to the forty-fifth power of silver dollars. Those couldn't be stored here on earth. I would have to make them into this big ball 
And then the diameter of that would be 60 times the distance of the earth to the sun. So that would be 5.5 billion miles. And now we're going to mark that silver dollar, blindfold a guy, send him up in a rocket. It's going to take him 400 years to get there. And then at any point, we're going to let him out and find the one that we marked. The chances of picking out that marked silver dollar would be the same chances as Jesus fulfilling just 16 of these prophecies. And again, Jesus fulfilled all 300. They didn't stop there because he had students. It was free help. He decided to take the math a step further. He took one more look, so he asked the questions. What are the chances that someone could fulfill just 48 of these prophecies? Just 48. The odds increase to 1 and 10 to the 157th power. I want to illustrate that, but we cannot use silver dollars anymore. We got to go smaller. So now, imagine with me, if you can, because we all see them, right? Electrons. We got to take some electrons. If we had one inch of a line of electrons, just one inch, and I started counting them right now, and I counted 250 per minute without stopping, going to lunch, taking a rest or anything. It would take me 19 million years to count that one inch line of electrons. I got a lot of time for that. If I had that many electrons, I would need to make it into one big ball. And you know how that ball would be? How big it would be? The radius would be bigger than any man has ever seen with the Hubble telescope. 13 billion light years. And now we mark one of those electrons. We send an astronaut into space. And we'd say, at any point, you can get out and grab the electron. We mark one with the next. The chances of picking out the marked electron would be the same chances as Jesus fulfilling just 48 of the prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled all 300. How do I know the Bible can be trusted? Well, the Old Testament's already told me that it can be. It's already pointed to Jesus. There are other writings outside of this book, history, that prove that Jesus really lived on this earth and really did the things that he did. Even Jewish people who are still waiting for the coming Messiah still admit that Jesus was here on this earth walking among them. And they will admit that he, they thought he was a lunatic. They will admit that many of the miracles that he did but he was not God, and that's what they preach. We know that he is because I watch him working in your life, and I feel him and see him working in my life, and the chances of him being real is 100%. The prophecies have been fulfilled from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Think about it. 39 books of the Old Testament that contain over 300 prophecies the last one written 400 years before Jesus comes, written by many different writers, many different generations, and Jesus comes along and fulfills all 300 of these things. And you tell me the Bible is not real. You tell me that they just guessed. They didn't even know they were all writing at the same time. It would be the same as me saying, we're going to start today, and I want somebody to write a chapter of a book and then in 300 years later, we're going to have somebody else write chapter 2, and a few hundred years later, chapter 3. And when we get done with this thing, it's all going to make sense and be unified. What's the chances of that happening? 
What if we just said this week, somebody's going to write chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. We're going to divide it out among five people just this week. You can't talk to each other. You just start writing. We're not giving you the topic or anything. You just start writing. What's the chances at the end of this week that we have one unified book across the board? Zero. Why? Well, we're human, so we're going to mess that up. We better be inspired by God. So maybe I should say that. If God inspires all five of you, it's going to be pretty unified. But if not, it's, it's going to be a crazy book going forward. These scriptures, Jesus loved them. You always found Jesus going out reading them, preaching them, discussing them. Everyday conversations, Jesus was always using scripture to point back to. I think it's safe to say that Jesus was obsessed with these scriptures. And if he's obsessed with them and he's teaching them, his church should be doing the same thing. Not opinions. We don't preach opinions. We preach gospel. We preach scripture. And as disciples of Jesus, we have to have a very high value, very high value on the scriptures and the very words of God. So these next few minutes, I want to just give you two reasons why I think you need to read the Bible. And this is a whole series, so don't worry, like you got cut short on two pieces. There's a whole lot of this, but I want to give you my two main ones today. Here's the reasons why I think you need to read the Bible. Number one, the Bible is essential to discipleship. It is essential. And we throw that word discipleship around a lot. And it's misused, and it's used correctly and misused in certain places. Because we imagine, because we read Scripture, that makes us a disciple. And that's not what makes you a disciple. It is committing your life to this. Living out these principles. Replicating what God has done in your life and teaching other people the same thing. Matthew 28, just before Jesus would be ascended, he is sitting or standing on this hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and he said, This is what I want you to do. As I'm leaving, this is what I want you to do. He says, I want you to go, and, and he uses this term. He says, I have I'm given, I have all authority. So I'm speaking this on, on a, an authoritative ground. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't tell us to make converts. Now, some of you will get rattled real quick. He did not make converts. He didn't say go make believers of people. Because even the demons believe. And the thing that separates demons from God is their relationship. I can believe in a lot of things. But he said you go make disciples. You make disciples of people. Because when you become a disciple, you live, breathe these, these scriptures. They become your life. They, they would have in, in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, when they're going to synagogue, and the rabbis would open the scrolls, they would take honey, and they would dip honey on the scroll. And they would lick their, their hand with the honey to be reminded that these words are as sweet as honey. As scripture talks about that all the time. Why do you think it was so important when they entered in to the promised land that God told them it was a place filled with milk and honey? It wasn't just, and by the way, you know what the milk and honey was? Can I sidestep for just a second? We, think, we hear milk and honey and think that's a really weird thing. Like we're going to the promised land and there's a lot of milk. I'm, uh, I'm lactose intolerant. What's that going to do for me? When they went in, they talk about milk. They were actually talking about the mountain goat. There's a mountain goat in Israel. They're everywhere. So if you're a goat hunter, <laughs> it's perfect. But they're everywhere. And what they were saying, those things have meat and milk. Because you've got to remember, two, two million people were coming in to the, to the promised land. They had to have something to sustain. And when they came in, they said there was milk, so they knew they were talking about the goats. 
The, the obix is what it's called. And then they said, what about honey? Well, that was off the date tree. You guys ever eaten dates from the store? Not go on dates, eat dates, little <laughs> thing. They're sweet, and they would pull honey. They were date. When you go out in the desert, in the desert, in the desert, a little bit of rain, there are date trees everywhere. And there was honey. And God provided them milk and honey. But that honey would be symbolic when it would always talk about scriptures and how sweet the words of God were. And so here, we have to understand as disciples that Jesus tells us that we need to treat these words. He's given us these words on behalf of God that we're to observe everything that he has commanded us to do. So listen to what Jesus says to the people who believed in him, his, the followers. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, he goes, he says this, if you abide, say that word with me, if you that's an important word. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Knowing the truth doesn't set you free, by the way. Because a lot of people know the truth. They know not to do some of the things they do. That knowing it is half the battle. Doing it sets you free. And Jesus said, if you, want to, if you want to know what truth is and you want to truly be set free, then you abide in my words. Because in my words, this is what Paul was saying in Galatians, you will find liberty. And they will be sweet as honey. So when we talk about discipleship, Jesus said, make disciples. You're going to be disciples if you're in my word. And here's the definition of disciple. A disciple actually means learner. A learner. So you can be a disciple of anything. Somebody told me that even in Arabic, disciple actually means Taliban. So probably want to say that in another country or type that. Um, FBI will be on you in a heartbeat. But he says, if you continue, what is a disciple? It means learner. But if you break that word down even more into its original context, it actually means more than that in the New Testament. It, it means it is an inherent who accepts the instructions given to him or her and makes it his rule of conduct. Here's what it's saying. You hear God's words and you make it a way of life. It's not just reading it to read it and check it off. the li- It's reading it and putting this into action. You know what the enemy can't stand is a church that is in Scripture. You know why we're pushing for you to read Scripture, even if it's for five minutes a day? Because I believe even five minutes in the presence of God is greater than any other thing that we could possibly do with our lives. Because what God can do with five minutes, imagine what he can do when we put five minutes to the test every day and say, tell me what you want me to know so that I can live these principles out to become more like you. Because there's a dying world out there that needs to hear the gospel. But I can't preach the gospel if I don't know the gospel. And I can't tell about God if I'm not spending time with God. And the way that we know who he is and his character is digging back in. It is the mark of discipleship. It is making this our rule of conduct of how we live our lives. It's a different way to look at it, isn't it? And these things are collecting dust because we're scared of it because what do you do with an old Bible? I'm just curious because I don't know what to do with old Bibles because I'm scared to throw them away. (laughs) What's going to happen? There's a fear to them, right? But this goes right along what Jesus is saying. He's teaching them to observe, observe it. Everything I've commanded you. So listen to what he says. He says to the people who believe in him, if you remain faithful 
and abiding, you are my disciples. That's the word that he gives them. And what throws me off if I've met people who say, I love Jesus and I love the church, but they do not read the scripture. And you can't do that. It's like saying you love your spouse, but you're cheating on her. Openly. That's like saying you're on a diet, but you continuously go and get a number two at McDonald's. Large size. That sounds really good right now. But he says that when you disconnect from the word, you open yourself up to be misled. When Jesus was being tempted, you guys ever catch what the devil was using to try to tempt Jesus and get him to mess up? He was using the scriptures. The devil will preach you a sermon if you'll let him do it. And you'll fall into all kinds of false teachings if you're not careful and don't put everything up against this word. You'll find yourselves thinking that you're doing the right thing. Thinking because this is happening, God must be in it. But not all things that are good are of God. Because it wasn't the bad side of the tree that Eve was going after. It was the good side. We've got to say in Scripture. That is the essential piece of us as believers. Another Spurgeon quote. If you, I mean, Spurgeon was, uh, some stuff was like too nerdy, weight heavy. But some of his stuff was, like, I really wish that Spurgeon could preach today. Because some of the stuff he would have to say is groundbreaking. But I love this quote. Charles Spurgeon said this, A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Usually belongs to someone who's not. As in, when disciples posture themselves into the Scripture and posture themselves before God to hear and let God's words sink in, that life's typically not torn apart. It may have some bad days and things not going well, but God is still God in their life and their eyes are still focused and fixed on the one who's the author and sustainer of our lives. So here's the, here's the last piece. The second last thing. The Bible provides spiritual nourishment. Spiritual nourishment. You got, you got to watch what you eat. Because when you don't eat of the words, you starve. And your life begins to drift. And the enemy begins to come in and attack. And he begins preaching that sermon to you. And you begin believing things that aren't true. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says this. Man shall not live by... You guys have heard this verse before. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not, listen, he doesn't use the word. He doesn't say not preceded. That's past tense. He used the word proceeds, active. The Bible says he speaks. It doesn't say he spoke. He speaks. And what happens is when you're reading the Bible, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit begins illuminating something into your life. Things start to click. That's God speaking to you. And that's what man lives by, Jesus says. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you go back to that survey we talked about when we started, that Barna did, it said three out of every four people in America are reading the Bible once a week or less. What if, don't do this, but what if as a body, we said this week we're just not going to read the scriptures. We're not going to read anything. What do you think your life's going to look like on Sunday? Some of us already know because we haven't 
We haven't picked this book up. Can, can I just help you? You're going to be non, there's not going to be any nourishment in your body whatsoever. Spiritually. You're going to feel drained and dry because you haven't allowed the Spirit of God to move and speak into your life for the week. So how are we supposed to make disciples if we're not spending time with him because we're malnourished? And I know, and a lot of, a lot of the reasons, and I don't want to cast judgment like, you should have been reading your Bible all week. That's not the kind of church we are. I understand because I know some of us don't read it because we're intimidated by it and we don't understand it and don't even know where to start. I get it. That's fine. No judgment. But we got to make sure that we eat. Even if it's one small meal at a time, we've got to eat. And we've got to stay nourished. This is the way that people are in the spirit. You have the enemy trying to destroy them and destroy you and destroy me and everything he's got, his strength, he knows the scriptures and he'll use those things. Because he want, the devil wants to cut us off from our relationship with God. And our one thing that we have that attaches us to that is his, is his word. When I think about the Bible, I think of this word recalibration. Recalibration. I was listening to a pastor this week that was talking about this, so I had to do my own research to back up to make sure that what he was saying was true because I don't know a whole lot about recalibrating cars and machines. Like, I know how to recalibrate my life, but uh, you, if you call me over to help you fix your car, i got bad news for you. It's going to be worse off than what it was, or I'm going to tell you a really good mechanic. But when we talk about cal- uh, calibration, calibration is most frequently used in, like, gas detectors used in chemical factories. And our federal law here in the U.S. requires every room in a chemical factory to have a gas detector because just a little bit of toxicity in the air could kill everybody that works in the building. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Not much, just a little bit. So after some research, I found the number one gas detector company in America is a company called Honeywell, which now when I saw that, I realized they own about everything that involves things on your wall. When you Google one of the manuals to see how they calibrate the chemical detector, before you see how to do that, what you find is on their website in, in the manual. It says, we strongly recommend as a manufacturer, in other words, we won't get sued. We strongly recommend as a manufacturer that you calibrate these gas detectors every day because the atmosphere will corrupt the sensors eventually. And to calibrate it, you're to take the gas detector down, bring it into a clean air room, clean off the sensors, re-zero out the machine so they can get the accurate readings and then put it back. Our hearts are sensors that need to be recalibrated daily because we live in a corrupt environment and every day toxicity is starting to fill us in, sin starting to fill us in. And spending time with God pushes that back out. It washes us and it cleans our sensors so that when we go back into this world, we're not conformed to it. I base everything I believe of why this book can be trusted off of those prophecies of the Old Testament. That Jesus would fulfill those things. And by the eyewitness account of those disciples, 
I didn't need to know that Jesus walked on water. I didn't need to know that he turned water into wine. I didn't need to... Just the fact that he was dead and he rose again walking around as a man that was alive after being crucified and beaten. And he's walking around. And non-Christian people are writing about this and telling us there was a guy that we saw with our very eyes he was killed. And with our very eyes he's up walking around three days later. The third reason why I know that God's real and this book is real because I, I see him working in my life and I see him working in the local church's life. And I'll bank on that. So I want us to, to just close today of just understanding the Bible is not merely just an encyclopedia of truth. It's not just a roadmap for life or a divine rule book. This book is authored by God through people and tells one unified story from front to back of his redemption for us. So my prayer this week is that you would just start reading. Like we've been as a church, and if you're new here, we've just challenged our church every day. Read the Bible just for five minutes. Just five minutes. Before you start anything, read it. Just read it. But where do you want to start? You just want to open it up? No, because when I did that, I went to Leviticus, and that got really weird in about five verses. Just open it up and start reading the book of John. And you're going to come to this phrase. It'll be a little confusing. Let me help you. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word. Here's what it, Jesus always has been. He's always been at work. And then everything else after that, just keep that in mind. He's always been at work and you're going to be good to go. But this week, five minutes a day, just grab it. Before you do anything else, just read it. You got five minutes. You know, we kill it everywhere. Like before you turn Netflix on, just five minutes. Just like run Netflix, just flick this. Does that work? Just do that. But I want to pray for you because I want us to be a church that we are guided and led by this. And God and led by the words of the Holy Spirit, not by opinions of man. That'll create people who are far from God if you don't do that. Father, I thank you today for your words. Lord, even the fact that you entrust us to preach these words, to teach them, to study them. I just pray that we wouldn't take that for granted. Just pray that we would feel that these words when we read are words that want to impact and speak directly into our lives. So Lord, I just pray even this week that everyone in this room would just grab their Bible and they would just read just for five minutes and start in John. Just read. And I just pray that you would speak to them and they would hear you like they've never heard you before and that life transformation will happen in that moment. God, I just echo the words from the Psalms that we'll taste and see that the Lord is good. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.